Welcome to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast that takes you freewheeling down the great internet rabbit hole of trivia. Each week we pick a starting point and then who knows where all the twists, turns and tangents will take us. But we'll be sure to unearth a treasure trove of frivolous facts that will be as fascinating as they are, well, useless. When One Thing Leads to Another is produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. Our theme music is by Justin Mitchell. This is Series 2, Episode 15. The Bee Gees! I had a delightful couple of hours the other day. Did you? <laughs> when you were out. <laughs> I was lost in a rabbit hole, which started on Twitter. Oh, right. As it often does. Yeah. Someone had shared a video clip of the Bee, the Bee Gees. The Bee Gees. I don't know why I have to do it in a, in a Liverpoolian accent. Anyway, it was from about 1970, right. I think, yeah. on an American chat show. And they were sitting on the sofa, so it wasn't a proper performance. Okay. Um, they were obviously being interviewed. But Barry had his guitar. Yeah. And they started singing Massachusetts. And the lights And it was just so wonderful to watch because, well, aside from the singing and the harmonies, which were amazing, yeah, Morris was playing the fool, making the audience laugh because he doesn't sing anything until the harmonies, until the chorus. So he was, you know, yawning. And, oh, I see. Very good. Oh, he was. Yeah, it was just one of those glorious moments of television. It was so lovely. I hadn't realised what a character Morris was. Right. So then I embarked on my journey in, into the Bee Gees. The Bee Gees rabbit hole. Because yeah. there's, um, there's only Barry left. Yeah, there's only Barry left. And interestingly, I was looking at a lot of the, a lot of footage of them from their pre-sort of disco 1970s stuff. Right. And it's amazing how much he looks like the Liverpoolian comedian John Bishop. <laughs> Honestly, have a look. Okay. Have a look. You'll see he really looks like him. It's uncanny. He's got the teeth and the hair. He's certainly got the teeth. Yeah, I've, I've, I'm, I'm wondering if John Bishop has modelled himself on Barry Gibb. Well, he w I, couldn't, I wouldn't blame him. He's a, he's a damn fine looking guy. And Barry Gibb, by the way, who did the bulk of the songwriting. Yeah, they take a lot of stick, the Bee Gees, but I mean, their back catalogue is oh. absolutely fantastic. Oh my God, it's incredible. So there's just so much there you know, of of the Bee Gees to trawl through. And it was a real joy, actually. Yeah. And, you know, if you're like me, your knowledge of the Bee Gees really centres around the 1970s disco stuff, Saturday yeah. Night Fever and, and all of that. So it was interesting learning about their pre-Saturday Night Fever career. Right. Um, in both Australia and then the UK and the US. So, you know, they had some hits in Australia because, of course, they were living there. Yeah, that's right. They'd moved as a family from Manchester to Queensland in 1958. That's quite the change, isn't it? Yeah, they, they looked out there, I would say. Um, <laughs> nothing, nothing against Manchester, of course. No. It's just that the weather's a bit better down it's there. It's just the weather, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so they had some hits in Australia, but they only ever scratched the surface. Um, and they, they were frustrated by the lack of something big happening. Right. So, actually, the three brothers went back to the UK in early 1967. Oh, what, to try and make it? To try and make it, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And before they left Australia, their dad, Hugh, sent some of their tapes to Brian Epstein. 
Oh, right, OK. Who passed them on to Robert Stigwood. OK. I don't know if, you, if you've heard of him. He, he was managing Cream at the time. Oh, right, OK, and, yeah. And, yeah, he'd recently merged his agency with Epstein's company, NEMS, N-E-M-S. OK. And they essentially went back to a record deal with a five-year contract just on the back of the tapes that their dad sent with Polydor Records. Oh, right, OK. Yeah. And interestingly, I, I didn't know there used to be five people in the Bee Gees. Oh, right, okay, well, I knew there was the younger brother who died early, right? Andy. Uh, yeah, but he wasn't... He it, wasn't one of the no, original five? No, oh. it, no, it was, um, it was obviously Barry, Robin and Morris and drummer Colin Peterson and lead guitarist Vince Maloney, both Australians, were hired to make the Bee Gees into a full band. Oh, okay, I didn't so, know that. Yeah, so on their first album in, in the UK, there's five of them on the cover. Oh, right, okay. Mm. Anyway, they released their hit that they'd had in Australia, Spicks and Specks. Where are the girls? didn't do anything as far as I can see. No I've never heard of it. No exactly. So for their second single they partook in a bit of jiggery pokery which I always like. Yeah. So their second single was New York Mining Disaster 1941. In the event of something happening to me sounds like a Simon and Garfunkel song, doesn't it? It does a bit, yeah. yeah. The record was issued to radio stations in April 1967 with right. a blank white label okay. listing only the song title and some DJs immediately assumed this was a new single by the Beatles and started playing the song in heavy rotation. Oh. And that helped the song climb into the top 20 in both the UK and the US. Oh, wow. Yeah, but no such chicanery was needed to boost the Bee Gees' next single, To Love Somebody. There's a light, some kind of light. Oh, well, that is, in fact, my favourite Bee Gees yeah. tune. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Barry Gibb, what a talent. And did you know it was originally written for Otis Redding? I did not know that. I mean, I obviously know the Nina Simone Of course. Well, uh, she, she, version. hers is the definitive version, really, isn't it? Oh, it's the absolute killer version. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, it was an interesting story that Otis Redding came to see Barry Gibb at the Plaza in New York City one night, and Robin claimed that Otis Redding said he loved our material and would Barry write him a song. Oh, okay. And um, so Barry wrote the song and the Bee Gees recorded it themselves in April 1967 and they released it in June that year. But of course, Otis Redding died in a plane crash later that year before having a chance to record it himself. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's so much absolute gold from the Bee Gees. We could have a whole episode devoted to them. But then this podcast is when one thing leads to another and so I'm going to have to move on very soon and here's a fun fact that will take us off on a tangent oh the Bee Gees also released Massachusetts love that song in 1967 classic and that song was the second ever song to be played on Radio One oh, the second song to be played on Radio One yeah do you know what the first was was it uh, flowers in my hair or oh, something? if you're going to San Francisco no but interestingly Massachusetts is essentially about the fact that everyone has gone to San Francisco and the lights oh, all went down, down in Massachusetts. It's essentially oh. saying nobody's at home because they're all in bloody San Francisco. I see all the groovy guys yeah. moved west to San Fran. Yeah, which is interesting in itself. Anyway, ah, okay. I would have guessed maybe it was the Beatles or some, somebody like that. But no, the first song played on Radio One was Flowers in the Rain. Flowers in the Rain. By The Move. Okay. Um, I, I didn't really know who The Move were. Do you? No. 
I know nothing. I know nothing mm. about them. Well, it was Roy Wood's first band. Oh, him off of Wizard. Him off of Wizard. Yeah, I only really knew him ah. from Wizard, but I've learned quite a bit about Roy Wood. Okay. Yeah, he he that was lonely that Christmas. No, didn't he wish it could be Christmas every day? No, that was Noddy Holder. Oh no, you're right. Oh, that was uh, Mud, or wasn't it? Who was the one? Ba, 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 I will ba, ba, be lonely this Christmas. Yeah, was it Mud or it was mud, the Sweet I think. or something yeah, like that? Yeah, one of them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was the yeah. Elvis impression. He he wished it could be Christmas every day. Yeah, he did. Thank that... you. I sit corrected. Oh well, I've just looked up something rather interesting about oh. uh, the move. Oh, go on then. And more specifically, their manager, a bloke called Tony Secunda, right? Who I've not heard of, but he actually managed a lot of the big bands of the time: the oh, Moody yeah. Blues, Procol Harum. Oh yeah. Motorhead. Oh. T Rex. So he was a manager de jour, and the move song, "The Flowers in the Rain." I'm just sitting watching flowers in the rain. Yeah. Was their third big hit in the UK and okay. it reached number two in the charts and it was oh. actually written by Roy Wood okay and Tony Secunda the their manager yeah. was known for being uh, a bit of a sensationalist and he liked to create drama and shock to promote you know he was one of these you oh, know yeah. pr promote it at all costs right um, and I was reading that for the single Flowers in the Rain he produced a cartoon postcard to promote it yeah and it showed um, the Prime Minister of the time, Harold Wilson. Right. Do you remember? The, uh, he, uh, he, he was the he's guy with the, the pipe. He's the northerner, isn't he? He was the northerner with the pipe. And um, on the postcard, Harold Wilson is in bed with his secretary, Marcy Williams. Ooh. Uh, which is a little bit saucy. Bit naughty. But this totally backfired as a promotional tool. Yeah. Because Harold Wilson did not see the funny side. No, I'm not surprised. And he actually sued the move. Oh, dear. The band for libel yeah. and the group lost the court case oh. and they had to pay all costs and all royalties earned by the song were awarded to Wilson. He actually donated them all to charity. Yeah. And yeah. that ruling remained in force even after Harold Wilson's death, believe it or not. So they've never received any royalties. Exactly. <gasps> and they... Paul Roy Wood, he wrote the song. I know, One that. of their biggest hits and he hasn't received a penny for it. Not a penny, however. I wish it could be Christmas every day. I yeah. think he's earned a few bobs oh, since yeah, then. That's, so that's true. Swings and roundabouts. Yeah. I was just having a little look at Roy Wood. And in 1969, he was openly discussing his desire to form a band playing more eclectic music, including both harder rock and classical instruments, which he tentatively dubbed the Electric Light Orchestra. Ah, okay. And so, and not long after that, his pal Jeff Lynne joined the group. Ah, okay. And so, so the move stemmed ELO, which I had no idea. I didn't oh, know I that Roy Wood was ever involved with ELO. Neither did I. Yeah. And then what did he then, then he left? And then Roy Wood eventually left and formed Wizard. I yeah. see. Yeah, yeah. Thus leaving old Jeff Lynne. Yeah. With the ELO. Yeah, I, that was, I had no idea about that. That was interesting. The fusion of rock and classical. Yeah. Did you know that Jeff Lynne wrote the song Xanadu? What, Olivia Newton-John? Yeah, as well as other songs for the 1980 film. No, I did not know that. Yeah. Nice fact. Have you ever seen it, Xanadu? I don't think I have. No, no. I, I haven't either. It's got Gene Kelly in it. Oh, the world's finest ever dancer. And Xanadu was his final role. Oh, was it? In 1980, yeah. And did you know, so I'm, I'm veering off now, I'm leaving 
ELO and Xanadu. We're waving, we're waving ELO off. Yeah, and I'm uh, I'm going with Gene Kelly. Uh, did you know as well that Gene Kelly? This is this is probably common knowledge, but we um, are we going to betray our own thickness? Well, here? I think we do in most episodes. It's true. Um, yeah, Gene Kelly directed the film Hello Dolly. Okay, which I had no idea. Didn't Gene Kelly direct Singing in the Rain? Yes. Or co-direct it? He did co-direct it, I think, with Stanley Donnan. Okay. And he was asked to direct the film version of The Sound of Music, did you know? Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, and and that had already been turned down by his co-director, Stanley Donnan. Okay. And Gene Kelly, when he was asked to direct The Sound of Music, he escorted Ernest Lehman, the screenwriter, out of his house saying... Go find someone else to direct this piece of shit. (laughs) Yeah. Right, well, let's have a little look at Ernest Lehman, shall we? Since he's he's cropped up. Yeah. I have found out he was a hugely successful screenwriter. Right. Who also wrote the screenplays for West Side Story. Oh, right, okay. And one of my all-time favourite Hitchcock films, North by Northwest. Oh. Okay. We watched that relatively recently, didn't we? we? We've had a little Hitchcock phase we have indeed and i'd never seen it before you no. sat you sat me down and made me watch it and i enjoyed it yeah it's an undisputed heavyweight champion classic yeah no question and you remember the the final scenes or the, the scenes towards the end of north mm. by northwest at mount rushmore oh yes yeah yeah well hitchcock told journalists that he wanted cary grant to hide from the villains inside the nose of Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) (laughs) And then he would give himself away by sneezing. Oh, right, and a bit of dramatic irony. Yeah. That would make it a little bit ridiculous, I think. And he speculated that the film could be called The Man in Lincoln's Nose, or (laughs) even The Man Who Sneezed in Lincoln's Nose. (laughs) Not quite got the same ring to it. But the people who were in charge of Mount Rushmore yeah. said, you can't be doing that, pal. Right. So he, he couldn't he couldn't film okay. uh, Cary Grant in the nasal passage right. of uh, Lincoln, no. And when Hitchcock first got together with Ernest Lehman, the, yeah. the screenwriter, um, Lehman said to him that he wanted to make the ultimate Hitchcock film. Right. And Hitchcock supposedly thought for a moment, and he said he always wanted to do a chase across Mount Rushmore. Oh, wow. And so the result was North by Northwest. Great name as well. Better than the man who sneezed in Lincoln's nose. Yeah. Do you know where Mount Rushmore is? And don't say America. Um, I'm going to guess it's going to be one of the northern states. I'm going to say, I'll say Washington State. It's in South Dakota. Oh, okay. Mm. The actual sculpture... Right is called Shrine of Democracy. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it was designed by sculptor Gutzon Borglum. Okay, oh, this is, I'm in, I'm glad you're going into this because I really don't know too much about Mount Rushmore and it's ex- an extraordinary thing. It is extraordinary, yeah. Do you know, can you name the four presidents? I'm going to say Jefferson. Yeah. We know Lincoln. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say, who's another big hitter there? Uh, Jefferson, Lincoln, it begins with a G, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, first name does. Oh, come on, Bill. This is awkward. I don't want you to tell me because I want to get it myself, but my 50-year-old brain is too full of other really fascinating stuff. Yeah, I'm sure that's uh, the reason. Oh, you're going to have to put me out of misery. George Washington. Oh, Bill. Oh, that is, that's, that's awkward. Can we cut that bit out? No, we bloody won't. We'll keep that in. George Washington. Who's the fourth? Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, OK, Ted. Yeah, so it's George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, 
Theodore Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln, and they were chosen to represent birth, growth, ah. development and preservation, respectively. OK, gotcha. Yeah. And did you know that the sculpture at Mount Rushmore is built on land that was illegally taken from the Sioux Nation in the 1870s? Oh, blimey. OK. Yeah, when now, you know, Custer... General Custer and his pals discovered gold there, thus prompting a gold rush with thousands of miners descending on the area and stealing the land, essentially. Um, anyway, the Sioux continued to demand return of the land. And in 1980, the US Supreme Court ruled in United States versus Sioux Nation of Indians that the Black Hills, which is where Mount Rushmore is, were, were stolen okay. and awarded $102 million in compensation. Right. But the Sioux have refused the money yep. and demanded return of the land. Yeah, quite right. Good for them. And the conflict continues, oh, really? leading some critics of the monument to refer to it as as a shrine of hypocrisy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, look at that. Oh, God, that's really taken the shine off Mount Rushmore for it, me. Yeah, well, and, and also the money remains in an interest-bearing account, which as of 2015, um, that's the latest I could find, amounts to over $1.2 billion. But the Lakota still refuse to take the money. They believe that accepting the settlement would allow the US government to justify taking ownership of the Black Hills. Good for them yeah. for taking the stand. I mean, that is outrageous, yeah. isn't it, really? Tale as old as time, unfortunately. And speaking of General Custer... Oh, yeah. Um, I remember reading an interesting article about his last stand. Oh, yeah, I studied that at, um, at school. Oh, did you? Yeah, it was an absolute shit show. <laughs> yeah, right, OK. Yeah, yeah well... Obviously, with my, shall we say, diminished brain as it is, I couldn't remember, so I had to re <laughs> read yeah. it all. But yeah. anyway, yeah, the last stand, you know, Custer's last stand, yeah. makes it sound like, you know, there's, there's this courageous final battle um, yeah, and, no, where he was, finally succumbed, but it wasn't like no, that at all. it was crazy. In reality, the tribes organised by veteran warriors, Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, were prepared and waiting yeah. and uh, slaughtered Custer and his men without too much trouble actually. Yeah because he, he had no idea how many people he was going into battle with. I think he thought it was a few hundred didn't he? Yeah he massively underestimated how many uh, they were up against and uh, Custer only had 210 troops and he was facing you know thousands mm. uh, on the other side and not only that he split his little army of 210 into yeah. three. So they got absolutely yeah. battered. Yeah, he was, only, he was only supposed to be scouting out the camp, wasn't he? But I think he thought the Indian tribes were onto him, onto his trail. Right. So he thought, right, now was the, now's now's the, time, the time I'm going to have to do it. We're committed, and, let's yeah. go for it, yeah. Yeah, and a lot, of, a lot of Custer's army actually committed suicide because they knew what was in store for them. Yeah, oh they God. would rather turn the old gun on them. And a lot of them were underage as well. A lot of them were minors. Yeah, they were, ju yeah, they were just, you Kids. know, cannon fodder, yeah, as is yeah, so often well, the case with yeah. war. bloody war, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Horrific. I think it was um, Custer's wife after the battle, because it was a huge error what happened, you know, he never should have attacked. Um, but she spent the rest of her life trying to make him out as this hero. Oh, and, right. Yeah, propaganda almost. Right, OK. Yeah, trying to burnish his reputation. Yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah. Re revise history. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, to make, make her husband look like yeah. uh, the good guy. Yeah. I'm reading here that Ronald Reagan, 40th president of the USA, played George Armstrong Custer in the 1940 film Santa Fe Trail. That doesn't surprise me, really. 
Which brings me to a, a fun little story I found while researching Reagan's acting career. Um, <laughs> okay. I got this actually from Mental Floss, brilliant, brilliant website. Yeah, it's something we log on to quite a lot. Yeah, the nadir of his acting career might have been in the film Bedtime for Bonzo, okay. which he made in 1951, in which the future leader of the free world tried to corral a mischievous chimpanzee. Yeah. Sounds like a great plot line, doesn't it? I, I don't think I'm going to benefit in any way by watching that. I don't think you're going to benefit in any way from watching any of his films because I was looking through his filmography and I hadn't heard of <laughs> any of them. So they're not exactly going down in the annals of great cinema. Right. Um, anyway, bedtime for Bonzo. While shooting a scene with Peggy, his co-star... The, the chimp portraying Bonzo. Oh, yeah. The animal became intrigued by Reagan's tie <laughs> okay. and began pulling on it like a rope and refusing to let go. She compressed the knot into something no bigger than Reagan's fingernail. Uh, after finally being released by his animal assailant, Reagan was tended to by crew members who had to cut the tie off his neck. Wow. Yeah, so she nearly She nearly ended old, nearly killed Reagan. Yeah, and then that got me on to more monkey business, if you'll pardon the pun. I will not pardon that pun. I was looking at famous chimps and, and primates and oh, yeah. the like. Okay. And I came across a really interesting article and I wondered if you knew, um, you're a little bit artsy-fatsy and I wondered if you might know this story. Go on. The story of Pierre Brasseau. No, keep going. Right. Pierre Brasseau was a Swedish artist and chimpanzee who was the subject of a 1964 hoax perpetrated by Akedaka Axelsson, I hope I've pronounced that correctly, a journalist at the Swedish tabloid Gothenburg and Tinningden. <laughs> Sorry, I can't, my pronunciation is terrible. Anyway, Axelsson came up with the idea of exhibiting a series of paintings made by a non-human primate. Right under the pretense that they were the work of a previously unknown French artist named Pierre Brasseur. Oh, that's brilliant. In order to test whether critics could tell the difference between true avant-garde modern art and the work of a chimpanzee. Oh, that is brilliant. Yeah. So Pierre Brasseur was Peter, a four-year-old common chimpanzee from Sweden's Boras Park, i.e. the Boras Zoo. Right. Um, Axelson had persuaded Peter's 17-year-old keeper to give the chimp a brush and paint. Yeah. And after Peter had created several paintings, Axelson chose the best four <laughs> and arranged to have them exhibited at the Gallery Christine in Got Gothenburg, Sweden. That is brilliant. While one critic observed that only an ape could have done this. Oh, really? So well done to that critic. Yeah. Most praised the works. Fantastic. And Rolf Andenberg of the Gothenburg's Posten, so that's the, I guess, the Gothenburg Post newspaper, yeah. wrote, Brassau paints with powerful strokes, oh, wow. but also with clear determination. <laughs> His brushstrokes twist with furious fastidiousness. Pierre is an artist who performs with the delicacy of a ballet dancer. Oh, wow. Yeah, and after the hoax was revealed, Andenberg insisted that Peter's work was still the best painting in the exhibition. <laughs> Thank you for listening to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich.
If you've enjoyed this episode, then please rate and review us on wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe, and that way you'll never miss an episode. We'd also love to hear from you, especially if we've got any of our information wrong, or you have some more fascinating facts about something we've talked about, or you could even suggest a subject for our starting point. Our email address is when one thing leads to another at gmail.com. A massive thank you to Justin Mitchell for letting us use his music as our theme song. It's a track called Homo Erectus, taken from his fantastical album called The Garden of Earthly Delights, which is available to buy from bandcamp.com. Thanks also to Acast for hosting us. Join us next week for another episode of When One Thing Leads to Another. Please note that all facts have been found on the internet and therefore we cannot vouch for their veracity. Mm -hmm.